Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Backer. This holiday season, many will choose to gift their friends and family with new clothing. In time for last minute holiday shopping, we discuss the environmental impact and sustainability of fashion. The fashion industry is responsible for an estimated two to 8% of the world's annual greenhouse gas emissions, driving climate change at a level that is only surpassed by two other industries, food and construction. The production and consumption of fashion garments heavily pollute the natural environment, accounting for 20% of the world's wastewater and for an estimated 20 to 35% of microplastic flows into the ocean. Moreover, millions of tons of textiles are wasted every year, sent to landfills or incinerated. And the problem is set to get worse. Clothing and footwear consumption, which has already exponentially increased in recent years, is expected to increase by 63% by 2030. As a growing number of consumers are looking for a solution to the problem and for more environmentally friendly, sustainable fashion goods, greenwashing has also grown. In this episode, I learn more about how the Federal Trade Commission regulates unfair or deceptive marketing practices in the fashion industry and discuss whether fashion can ever truly be sustainable. I'm joined by Carolyn Kennedy, a 2024 JD candidate at the Georgetown University Law Center and the author of the September 2023 ELR article titled Sustainable Fashion's True Colors, a proposal for restyling the FTC Green Guides. I also welcome Derek Sabori, an apparel industry veteran with more than 26 years of experience, to provide an industry perspective to sustainable fashion. Carolyn and Derek, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. So good to be here. Very happy to be here. Carolyn, let's start with you. In your article, you write that sustainable fashion claims are on the rise as consumers are seeking more ethical fashion garments with less of an environmental impact. So can you tell us about what, in theory, sustainable fashion is? I would say that the idea of sustainable fashion necessarily builds on broader concepts of sustainability. Many people begin this discussion with the United Nations Brundtland Commission, which described sustainability in 1987 as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. This definition and many others of sustainability therefore incorporate not only environmental, but also social and economic dimensions. In the fashion industry, sustainability for a company and a consumer might look like not only a focus on environmental factors, responsible production of high-quality garments from natural or recycled materials, perhaps made using less energy or water or toxic chemicals, or in consideration of the product's end of life, but also ensuring safe and fair working conditions as part of sustainability. Thanks, Carolyn, for setting that helpful context. Derek, I know that you have worked in the fashion industry for over two decades now. So what would you say, from your firsthand industry perspective, makes a garment sustainable? 
If we ask what makes something sustainable, similar to what Carolyn just alluded to, there's so many different things that are loaded into that question that we have to consider. Can we continue doing it at the pace that we're doing it now well into the future? Is it protecting future generations? And I think there may not be any product that is truly sustainable. If we consider utilization, for example, I think that is something that helps with sustainability. How long can we use our products? How long can we keep those materials in play? And there is so much when it comes to making apparel, making textiles that have to be considered that it makes it really difficult to really zero in and say that something is sustainable. We're looking at energy, waste, water, every environmental aspect and impact, every social impact at every stage of the process from raw material extraction all the way to manufacturing, production, transportation, consumer use, end of life. So I think to be able to put one label on it is very complex. Sustainability in our space has changed. It has become so much more complex. When I started in the sustainability space in the early 2000s, it was a lot easier to talk about sustainability. It was talking about maybe organic cotton, switching to hemp, using some recycled content. Today, we're talking about the elimination of hazardous chemicals, fair wages, safe working conditions. We're talking about circularity, about emissions, regenerative agriculture, biodiversity impacts. I feel like the heat on companies and people in these roles has definitely been turned up and the expectations are higher than they've ever been. Thanks, Eric. As you said, the heat has really been turned up on these companies to provide sustainable garments. And one reason why there is a lot of greenwashing, I'm sure, is because it's so hard to tell and define what sustainability is in the fashion industry. So Carolyn, can you tell us a little bit more about greenwashing and how a consumer can tell if they're being deceived or not? Greenwashing typically describes false or misleading claims made about environmental benefits it can definitely be hard for consumers to navigate shopping for better products without being deceived. So one common type of greenwashing was when a claim would suggest that a product was environmentally friendly based on a very narrow set of attributes without attention to other important environmental issues. And although these specific claims can certainly be accurate, these statements can still be misleading if they omit other relevant information. One example I always think of is vegan leather, and although vegan lifestyle choices can result in environmental benefits, the reality is that most vegan leather is still made of polyurethane, which is a type of non-biodegradable plastic that's just fossil fuels and shedding microplastics throughout its life cycle. Many clothes that we wear are made of plastic, but people see vegan leather and might think that it has a greater environmental benefit than regular leather or other products. and. I think that's because of the narrow nature of this claim, even if completely true, it's vegan. Greenwashing can also happen when a claim is so vague that it can easily be misunderstood. A lot of other green buzzwords fall into this category as well, eco-friendly, circular, plant-based, and to some extent, natural and organic. These words, companies know they reel in consumers, but they're often unaccompanied by or really fundamentally lack a precise meaning. Derek, from your perspective, are there any marketing claims or labels that you think actually hold water? I don't know if there are. Most companies across the industry struggle with traceability. 
and understanding where their products are coming from. So there is an attempt to tell the consumer about the good work that they are doing, but they struggle too with being able to confirm that something is made with recycled content or that they did have the proper certifications in place for their organic cotton, for example, or verifying that something doesn't contain a certain chemical. They are dealing with suppliers who tell them one thing. So a supplier may say, hey, we want to sell you this fabric that is recycled, that is made with this particular fiber, that is organic. There's a responsibility of the company to then go in and they have to do some work to verify that claim. They all can hold water. Organic can be good, but can a company say that their product is made with organic cotton? Yes, they can. Do we have any way as a consumer to know outside of the certification stamp that they say existed? But the consumer doesn't get to see the scope certification, the transaction certifications that came at every stage of processing and manufacturing. So it is sort of this grayish area. There's a potential for claims, even recycled, if it has a GRS certification or an RCS certification that can show that it has been through a verification and certification process, but that's typically not messaged to the consumer. So it is this sort of weird space of everybody relying on other people's inputs and hoping that the information they received was true. It can be overwhelming for all parties involved. So that's the industry infrastructure. Let's talk a little bit more about the legal infrastructure to substantiate these claims. Carolyn, can you speak to how these marketing claims are substantiated and enforced? I think the unfortunate answer is in part that many of these claims are just not being substantiated. A recent study found that 40% of environmental claims made to consumers, this was in Europe, were unsubstantiated and notably fashion was the top offending industry. And I think lack of substantiation is considered a form of greenwashing itself. And this issue is a priority for consumer protection authorities. And so what that looks like in the legal system in the U.S. is the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. The FTC has long had the authority to regulate deceptive marketing practices under Section 5 of the FTC Act. Under the current administration, the agency is currently taking steps to tackle greenwashing including beginning the process of revising the green guides, which are a set of administrative interpretations, which were first published in 1992, later revised most recently in 2012. These guides guide marketers who are making environmental claims, but are not independently enforceable. Rather, it's claims that are inconsistent with the guides that may subject marketers to action under Section 5. And really what they are, are a set of general principles, followed by guidance for specific types of claims, such as claims about recycled content or non-toxic claims or carbon offsets. In line with the FTC's broader policy regarding advertising substantiation outside of just an environmental benefit context, these guides require marketing claims to be supported by a reasonable basis and reiterate that such claims therefore require competent and reliable scientific evidence. But the reality is that this information might be really hard to find. Carolyn, can you tell us more about examples where the FTC has pursued greenwashing enforcement? 
I found that the FTC has really only pursued greenwashing enforcement in relatively limited instances of pretty egregious company behavior in violation of the FTC Act and also the Textile Act specifically as it relates to fashion. In 2022, there were some multi-million dollar settlements, which were by far the largest penalties in this area. And this might suggest some support for addressing greenwashing seriously in the fashion industry, but these cases really still reflect a focus on a fairly narrow set of issues. In this case, it was the false labeling of rayon textiles as bamboo, and that has been a longstanding focus of the agency. They've sent warning letters to dozens of companies falsely advertising rayon clothing as bamboo and have brought multiple enforcement actions against large companies like Amazon, Macy's, Kohl's, Walmart, Bed Bath & Beyond. But what did distinguish the recent complaint filed against Walmart and Kohl's from these previous actions is that the agency was now also focusing on misleading environmental benefit claims. For example, Walmart had claimed that its bamboo products were eco-friendly and sustainable, renewable and environmentally friendly, which were challenged as false, misleading, or unsubstantiated by the agency. For background, rayon is a generic name for a type of fiber, which can certainly be sourced from bamboo, but the material that comes out of the manufacturing process does not really retain the perhaps beneficial qualities of bamboo itself. And so these cases are one example of an issue that the FTC has taken seriously. Another example is claims about biodegradability and compostability. Some recent enforcement actions have been taken and challenged unqualified claims for textile products. I think recognizing that investigation and enforcement require the use of agency resources. And of course, the FTC has a variety of other consumer protection and competition goals. One recommendation I have is that although it would be great for the FTC to enforce more and utilize its authority, these multi-million dollar settlements are not the only way that the FTC can make an impact. They also can issue warning letters to companies, but also making public that these companies are potentially making deceptive claims and also publicizing this to allow consumers to be informed. And some people have urged the agency to consider making the green guides themselves enforceable through a rulemaking, arguing that these clear expectations would be helpful for marketers. Some parts of the green guides really lend themselves to case-by-case consideration. So this is not necessarily a perfect solution either for the agency, which also in the legal space is facing a variety of challenges to its existence and enforcement authority in general. Derek, in your work, have you relied on the green guides to inform the sustainability of some of your products? Relied on might be too heavy of a word. Referenced, yes. When these were revised back in 2012, there was a little bit of a buzz. And the company that I was specifically working in-house at had a legal department. So it was definitely something that was on the radar. The problem was that we felt like as we tried to reference these guides, Reading through them, you've got designers, product people, you've got merchandisers, you've got planners. There are a lot of hands in kind of bringing a product range to life. The legal team isn't necessarily involved at every step of the way, especially in 
choosing fabrics, deciding where these products are going to be made, how they're going to be made, and then writing up the descriptions that will be used in printed catalogs and in e-commerce situations, trying to navigate through those guides was not always easy because the words were not always specific to what we were trying to convey. And we would try to reference them, but then we would notice that competitors and peers in our space they were using the words without any sort of implication or any accountability. You're trying to stay in line with those guides, but yet your peers and competitors are not, then it gets tough if you're the ones following the rules. So I would say after 2012, nobody's talking about them. What we are talking about are disclosures and frameworks and reporting requirements and scope one, two, and three emissions and supply chain traceability and transparency and circularity and all of those things. I'm not hearing a whole lot on the FTC guides. And my hope is that when this revision comes out, that it is a little bit easier to navigate through for the layperson, and that it is kind of clear and concise and an easy matchup to the business of the apparel and fashion industry. What would you say from a layperson's perspective, as you said, would help to make these green guides actually useful? You know, accountability is one. If nobody is being held responsible for false marketing claims or doing it in the wrong way, then everybody is going to continue to do it. And you put yourself at a disadvantage, I would say, if you're trying to follow the rules specifically. So I think a good accountability structure, making sure that companies that are greenwashing are being reprimanded or being called out. I think having a good checklist per fiber or per initiative. And for us, it's working sort of in that value chain. So here's what you can say about fiber. Here's what you can say about processing. Here's what you can say about water. A true handbook, as opposed to a multiple page research paper that we had to sort of read through to try to make sense of. Definitely. So Carolyn, can you tell us a little bit more about the recommendations that you made in your article to, quote, restyle the green guides? I think one issue is that some of the terms frequently used by marketers today are not even referenced in the green guides, which hopefully future revisions will address. The FTC could focus on making clear that companies that choose to use such words must prominently explain what the term means in that context and offer substantiation. I think that another recommendation very specific to fashion is really just for the agency to consider it as a top priority. A lot of the Concern is maybe about different kinds of greenwashing, which are still definitely important, but greenwashing is rampant in the fashion industry. And I think one way the agency can react to this is to add specific examples to the guides of deceptive environmental marketing claims, specifically by fashion companies. Like Derek said, it's really about competition. It's unfair if some companies can make those claims without substantiating them, without them being entirely true, and they get the benefits. And it's funny because I recently found myself in a situation with organic cotton. The environmental law journal for Georgetown, we were buying sweatshirts and we ended up buying this sweatshirt, which on the screen printing company, they advertised the sweatshirt as 100% organic cotton. It's not. I don't know who really is to blame for the fact that that's on the website, but it's an 80% cotton, 20% polyester blend. And I'm actually not really sure what level of organic it is, but it was just such an example of like two of us who were really trying to look into it as consumers and we still failed. Carolyn, I might jump in there real quick because I think you bring up a really good point. 
There's so many things that could have gone wrong in that situation, right? The marketer on the e-commerce site might've had incorrect information, or that could have been the right information and the care label on the actual product was printed incorrectly. We have no method right now of truly knowing what that product is made of. Despite what they put on the hang tag, despite what they put on the care label, despite what they put on the website, we just truly don't know. This is where I think we need innovations, we need technologies, we need to focus on sort of digital passports and have the ability to really be able to tell what's in that product. What was it truly made of despite what it says on the label? I think typically for the most part, they're accurate, but it's powered by humans. So any part of that could have gone astray. So it's a good point though, good case to bring up. So that leads us to our next question. Derek, you alluded to this, but what would you like to see for the future of sustainability in the fashion industry? I think I want to see us move more towards a time of quantification over qualification. I think where the industry is moving is into this era of having good access to information, digitalization, visualization. Imagine if you could focus more as a consumer on data points that tell us exactly how much water was used, exactly how much energy was used, how many emissions were created, what chemicals went into processing. We can see when things were flown in versus being shipped in, the impact that came along with their packaging choices, how much plastic, et cetera. There is so much opportunity for us to have really hard data points that a consumer can use to make a choice. So I think I have a hope for more traceability, more transparency, and more solid data points so that we can really look at the impacts of our products and understand them better. Carolyn, what about you? After all your research, do you have any insight into what the future of sustainable fashion might look like? This is sort of inspired by an article I recently read by Vanessa Friedman, the fashion director and chief fashion critic at the New York Times. And she proposes in this that potentially sustainable fashion itself might be an oxymoron because sustainable implies able to continue over a period of time, while fashion implies change over time. I don't know if I would say that it's impossible, but certainly truly sustainable practices in the fashion industry will require more than just achieving carbon neutrality or using more recycled materials. And I think that as long as companies and consumers are still operating within a fast fashion model that really is just encouraging overproduction and overconsumption, there's really just still going to be too many items being produced, purchased, and thrown away. And even if these individual items were made in a way that is less harmful to the environment than they were before, it's still not really sustainable to be living this lifestyle. I mean, we all wear clothes and fashion undoubtedly plays an essential role in our human culture. It's a form of self-expression and identity, but we just don't all really need to be buying new clothing at the rate we are currently doing so and, and really pushed to do so. And I think that Part of that is stronger regulation in the industry related to some of these specifics requiring substantiation. But also, I think there's a role as consumers here for encouraging mindful consumption and really being thoughtful about the purchases that we're making, and especially around the holidays. Thanks, Carolyn. So with all that in mind, do you have any advice to people like me, for instance, or to our listeners who are looking to purchase garments for their friends and families? 
I think there are a few different options to choose from. One is buying vintage, buying renewed, buying products that have been repaired already, buying products that are already in the market. So getting the most mileage out of the products that we have already made, that we have already used up emissions and water and inputs on. So I think that's probably the first thing we can do. To Carolyn's point, you know, if we can convince ourselves that we may not need that new thing, but that is just part of our culture. So buy used where you can, repair what you already have. And then I think if you are going to buy, I think probably the best thing you can do is really aligning with a company or brand that aligns with your values. They should have a strong sustainability report. They're being very clear. They're aligning with all of the key frameworks. They're really saying, hey, this is what we're doing for our entire supply chain. You should be able to go to their website, for example, and understand what they're doing for labor, for chemicals management, for circularity, for deforestation, for biodiversity, for emissions, for climate change, et cetera. So aligning with good brands, supporting their work, asking questions from your favorite brand if they're not already doing that, putting pressure on them to make changes, just being a conscious consumer, being aware of what you're buying. It's going to take all of us contributing to this to help move this along. Well, Derek and Carolyn, thanks again for being on the podcast and for sharing this insight into the sustainability of fashion. And I know that I now will be heading to some vintage holiday markets for some last minute shopping. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.